This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and once a month we have a philosopher, Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, join us to give a little philosophical take on something that's on our minds or is in the news a lot. And boy, you can hardly click on any news source or watch or read any news source without seeing some story about AI or robots. And it seems like there's always two camps. The early adopters who think it's going to only improve our lives and then the people who are really scared and can only see the destruction of all of humanity. And so we're wondering, is there maybe a middle ground or or how best to access that middle ground? So joining me now is Chester Fritz, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy, Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Ashley. It's always great to be here. And this is a super interesting topic because this fear of new technology is pretty much as old as humankind. Plato has a dialogue in which he's afraid of writing, where he thinks that once kids start writing, they're going to lose their memory. They're Mm. going to lose the ability to do things. And the text becomes independent of the author. So we can claim that it means anything that we want it to mean as opposed to... uh, Well, that has happened. (laughs) That's right. I mean, mean, we decide what the Constitution means on a pretty regular basis, (laughs) even though those people weren't... they, They couldn't possibly have thought the way that we are right now. Plato was not dumb. He might have been wrong, but he was not dumb. Well, okay, that's fair. Um, Well, I actually just grabbed two stories at random uh, this morning, and one was on how AI could be drastically reducing food waste, particularly in grocery stores, uh, helping them either position things that are going to go bad more quickly or ways to alert the consumer that, you know, here's a sale. And then uh, further down the article, it was, hey, if you don't know what you're looking for uh, and you don't want to wander around this mega store, like just press the app and a light will come on on the aisle where that is. And I don't know how they can possibly narrow that down <laughs> to just that individual shopper. But then the second article was about the cult of AI and this particular writer very concerned about uh, voice cloning and making a digital twin that you don't even have to interact with the apps that you have. You can have a machine order a pizza for you by just saying whatever is the most popular pizza going out right now I want that one uh, and very concerned that we just don't interact as a human we don't even think about what we want to eat <laughs> anymore so uh, give us your first impression on just those two articles that coincidentally were both about food come to think of it <laughs> <laughs> well first of all maybe you should uh, take a pause and have a snack uh, <laughs> They seem similar when I think they're not, because one is about how computers can assist in our decision making and make life more efficient. Right? Uh, where are the cookies? Where are the chips? Yeah. Uh, help me find them so I don't waste my time. Sure. But the other is about predicting human decision making in and of itself. How do we take people out of the process or at minimum move people to where we think they should be? And Mm. those are very, very different things because one makes the app or what have you, the grocery store app, a tool at our disposal. But the other makes us 
interact with an intelligence, an artificial intelligence, but an intelligence that now we are in the position of saying, are we going to agree with them? Are we going to consent to what they're doing? Are we going to give in to them? Yeah. And those are very different experiences. What does it mean, Jack, that I got a robot vacuum for the holidays and I have said thank you when it's done cleaning or I have moved out of its way and said, excuse me, just out of habit <laughs> of just saying, oh, excuse me, something's there. Um, but also, you know, if, if my husband swept, I'm not so sure I would say thank you. I feel like I would say, yeah, you live here, too. <laughs> this is, you know, uh, Why am I being nicer to this robot? Well, you know, I, 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 not to cast aspersions on anyone, but maybe the robot is cuter. <laughs> I don't, oh, no. I don't know. Um, uh, I think that there's a couple different things going on there. The first is the robot plays the role of a pet. It's small. Mm. It's non-threatening. Uh, you imbue it with the personality that you impose on it, whereas your husband is your husband and he's his own person and he has his own assertions and he's you can also non-threatening um, <laughs> he's also non-threatening well but he, but no but, i know what you mean but I, I i i actually want to double down on that a second because your husband is incredibly threatening not because he's a dangerous person or anything like that but because he is so important to you mm. that if he rejected That's you fair. or criticized you it could cut you to the core that's fair. And Something happened this weekend that I, first of all, got very, very mad at. And it wasn't something he did, but something that he was involved in because of a friend. And then sitting on it a day or two later, I sort of went, I actually realized how much I would fight for this marriage. <laughs> the thing about the robot and the thing about why we talk to our cars and love things with faces yeah. and things like that is that those are one way relationships mm. we give, but we don't expect to get back. And, and what we imagine we're getting back are entirely on our own terms. Whereas human relationships are two ways at minimum. They could be many, many different ways. And we don't have control over what we receive, how we interpret it. We don't have control over how they interpret what we give. And mm. often we don't even have control over what we give because we are people with a subconscious and we often think we're doing one thing when we're doing another. You don't have to worry about their feelings. You only have to worry about do they serve what the purpose that you want. And so being friendly with them, mm. talking to them, apologizing, that's anthropomorphizing something. And that's more about being completely kind to something that you have no investment in. Anthropomorphizing that, you know, I feel like I can tell what my cat is feeling, for example, or the ability to see, make that feeling connection. They're using robots to teach empathy and, and things like this. If we can see ourselves in animals and in robots or, or maybe in art, shouldn't the extreme other end of this be that we should never be able to cause harm to another actual human? If I'm willing to look at a robot and see myself, shouldn't I look at another human and also just only see myself? 
So make sure I answer that question because I have to take a little tangent that I think will help illustrate this. Okay. The fundamental difference between dogs and cats are that dogs co-evolved with human beings and cats didn't. We didn't domesticate dogs. Dogs domesticated themselves. They would hunt by running after and stabbing large animals that would take miles and miles and miles to die. And so we would leave a trail of meat and blood and gore and wolves and other dog-like creatures would follow and then learn that the closer they got to human beings, the more access they had to food. And eventually they wormed their way into human beings. We wouldn't have had agriculture if we didn't have dogs. Uh, we wouldn't have moved forward if we didn't have dogs. And so what dogs did, us by breeding them and them by living uh, together, was learn how to be a dog by learning how to interact with a human being. Hmm. So dogs are designed not only to read our emotions, but to communicate their emotions. Cats were never particularly domesticated. All the cats that exist now can be genetically reduced to a group of something like a dozen cats in a barn in Egypt several thousand years ago. Uh, and so cats don't have the same relationship with human beings, which is why cats come off as such jerks <laughs> and I dogs come. do not agree. <laughs> I, I see this as cats have much better boundaries um, well, and, and they're not sitting there doing humans bidding because they're smarter. <laughs> well, the, the, there is a conversation to be had as, 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 as to whether or not it's, it's smart or, or dumb to be the person in charge. <laughs> but well, I think you're, the, we agree on the point that the cats are in charge and the dogs are subservient. Yeah. And that's the co-evolution. And so I think that part of what's happening here is that we are trying to develop a pet relationship or a hmm. interpersonal relationship with something that has no evolution and no history with us. And so we can force ourselves on them and our visions of them in a way that we couldn't with any other creature. I don't know. We make uh, kids apologize when we know they don't mean it. Well, but we make kids apologize in order to teach them to apologize. There's a long-term goal, right? We're not doing it to win, or at least the decent parents aren't doing it to win, <laughs> right? They're, we're, we're doing it because we want them to grow up to be the kind of people who apologize when they've done something wrong. Which is what we've decided is right or wrong. We are, we are in the danger of going down a very okay, deep hole. Okay, okay, okay. Be, because, of course... What is right and wrong is, to a certain extent, cultural and, to a certain extent, even individual. But there are touch points, and I would argue, certainly, that there are universal touch points. And this goes back to the other question that I promised I would answer, which is empathy and why wouldn't we, uh, why, why wouldn't we stop hurting someone? Yeah. And the answer is that what we are teaching our kids to do is empathize with other people. There's a fundamental problem. And the fundamental problem is that human beings are discrete individuals. We are physically separate. And everything that goes on that other people do, we have to imagine, we have to perceive, we have to interpret. So we can't be in someone else's mind. We have to make our best guess. And what empathy is, is the process of learning how to read another person's mind in order to give them 
the communication, the emotion, the support that they need. And mm. what growing older is, is becoming more familiar with more people and more cultures and more experiences so that you can create this imagination better. I'm going to tell a, a really horrible story. I'll tell it very, very quickly, but I apologize for it. When I was in uh, my early 20s in Albany, New York, I was hanging out in a friend's apartment and we heard noises uh, in the hallway and we went out and we found a woman who had just been raped mm -hmm. and she was crying in the hallway and, and saying, you know, to herself, what have I done? What, what did I do to deserve this? What, you know, blah, blah, blah. I looked into her eyes and I saw the pain in her eyes. And since then, not only can I not imagine myself doing that, but I can't watch Game of Thrones I can't rewatch Pulp Fiction. I can't watch anything with sexual violence because all I see is the pain and horror in that woman's eyes. And what empathy is trying to do is give you that connection with human beings using their behavior, using their, their the, listening to them, watching their language, all of this sort of stuff. And when we get so empathetic that we develop an intimate relationship with someone, an emotionally intimate relationship with someone, then the only time we hurt them is either when we lose control of ourselves or when we don't know that we're hurting them. You don't intentionally hurt people you really love unless you're profoundly broken. Hmm. You hurt people by accident or you hurt people you don't care about. Then uh, that also could go down a long line because I can think of a, a couple objections in, in my head. But but the main point being what empathy is, is the ability to understand what a person wants or needs and respond in kind while showing them respect as an individual. And in terms of robots, in terms of vacuums, in terms of androids, in terms of R2-D2 and C-3PO, these are things that we largely project onto them, right? For those who aren't Star Wars fans, R2-D2 is the short one that beeps and we don't know what he says. And C-3PO is the tall one who speaks and we do know what he says. And we have much more intimate, loving connection mm. with R2, even though R2 can be a jerk sometimes, because we don't know what he's saying, because we can impose tone and imagination and, 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 and our feelings on this, this thing. So how the, the fact that the robot vacuum doesn't have a face allows you to put your imagination on that robot vacuum in a way that you wouldn't be able to put on on a robot that looked so human that it was the uncanny valley, so human that you couldn't tell the difference. You would not, I guarantee, if you had a robot like that, you would not treat that robot like a pet the way that you would your robot vacuum. And actually the movie AI, the, the Stanley Kubrick, Steven Spielberg movie AI is really about this. And I think it's a wonderful example of, of how this works. You know, on the other side of this, me thanking the robot and maybe not thanking my husband for doing the same task, the opposite of this is, is potentially true, too, where we appreciate when the AI is doing something that we get annoyed that a human can do. And I'll, I'll use my situation as another example here, which is if I know my husband is coming home from work and he's going to be passing right by the certain store where we get our cat food and I say, hey, can you stop and go and get cat food? He gets really annoyed. But then the other day I told him, did you know that if you set your phone to say, hey, next time I'm by, 
this place, remind me to get cat food, and he thought it was an incredible tool. <laughs> I think there are a couple things going on. I think the first thing is lots of people love gadgets. I certainly do. And so for your husband, there may be just an element of the phone doesn't cool. He didn't know and he's really excited. Mm -hmm. But when the phone reminds him to do something, the phone is not expressing disappointment. <laughs> mm -hmm. When you call and say, hey, don't forget to do something, it can be easily read, even if it's not what intended you as- forget? Uh, right, exactly right, right. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, I, I wasn't going to forget. So again, this is about the reciprocal relationship of empathy because he's reading into you intentions that you may or may not have and he's reacting to those intentions that you may or may not have and that's the the, the side of empathy that we don't often talk about which is because we share this imaginative connection with people and because we think we know what they're they're saying and believing we often react to what we've decided they're thinking and doing yeah. rather than what they're actually doing yeah. I, I i know some folks who are in a marriage and, and one of the complaints that one of the, the the folks always say is is my spouse always engages in the imaginative version of me right they don't they don't listen to what i say they don't do what i say they only who isn't guilty do, of that is <laughs> well right and that's because we are empathetic creatures and we forget how often we get empathy wrong mm -hmm. and we forget how essential empathy is in our intimacy and so that leads to this core problem which is intimacy is often built on mistakes Intimacy is often built on miscommunication and misinterpretation. And then the more elaborate the level of empathy is and the more complex the relationship is, the more cutting that mistake can end up being. Right. I, I through through the last five, seven minutes in my head, I, I've been saying to myself, before you're done with the conversation, make sure to tell Ashley that she needs to thank Zach more often because she's not doing a good job. <laughs> you know? Well, and I have started doing that because I realized, why am I so willing to thank this robot and, and so not willing? And it's it's so easy to do. Um, it, it's, and and it's I do, so I, in a weird way, I do feel like it has improved <laughs> our marriage. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, <laughs> Which was good to begin improved. with, but... <laughs> We can look at everything we do as a metaphor for our relationships. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. But often when we see patterns, we can look at those patterns and ask, how do they represent our habits, our beliefs, our attitudes? Philosophy does that really well. Psychology does that really well. But we as individuals in our own relationships, we're very, very resistant to that because it makes us vulnerable it makes us vulnerable to our mistakes to 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 the realization that we're hurting someone when we don't want to hurt someone that we aren't the people who we think we are or even worse the people who we think we should be and mm -hmm. that's why i think all people need counseling and often couples need couple counseling and i think that this why this is why everyone needs a philosopher in their life right <laughs> i think i think that that what your relationship with your robot vacuum tells you is that when you have no investment, you can be sweet and play 
the game with yourself, that you can enjoy the idea of having a pet and be silly with it and all that kind of stuff. But when you have a real relationship with a real person that's that's real has real consequences, then you fall back like all of us do into into unthinking habits that get built into the the structure of the day and rethinking those are very very hard and and i do believe that one of the things that isn't getting enough attention in the media is the question of how our growing relationship with robots will change our relationship with human beings and in particular what can our relationship with robots teach us about our relationship with human beings everyone's so worried about as you started the discussion uh, with everyone's so worried about the robot overlords or AI taking decision making away from us or anything like that, that people aren't really asking to what extent human relationships are going to be altered by the presence of these other things. Yeah. And I think that that's a really rich thread to pull. Jack, in listening to this and noticing how much I was acting in a place of defending myself, even if it was harming my husband, and I'm thinking about using these robots to increase efficiency and and using tools and building empathy, but maybe not passing on the things like being threatened and um, being judgmental. Is it possible we could look at robots as as not a mirror, but as potential for how to be better humans? I think that a lot of our interactions with robots and a lot of science fiction in particular are divided by two different perspectives. Robot as slave versus robot as role model. Hmm. Also, also alien as slave and alien as role model or other group of people as slave, other group of people as, as role model. That's the fundamental divide. Are we creating creatures that will do our bidding, that won't be in pain because they have to work on the crops all day or can work in the Mm. mines without getting black lung? Uh, Are we creating creatures that can do the horrible things without suffering? Sure. That's one model. But there's another model, which is, is what we're doing really building a better intelligence and with better intelligence becomes better judgment and with better judgment becomes, comes a better person as a whole and then can we look towards those robots as guidance for human beings that is on the table it's probably not one or the other (laughs) there's probably also a third ground which is uh, a a a robot that we regard as equal Mm. in some sense i think what you're asking here is the question on the table which is is our future a future of useful tools or is our future a future where our very human experience will ultimately be bent by, altered by, and hopefully bettered by these new creatures that have artificial intelligence? Because the great nightmare, and I know we're running out of time, but the great nightmare is not artificial intelligence. The great nightmare is artificial intelligence becoming real intelligence. Because then we are dealing with creatures at minimum who are as equally, quote unquote, human as we are. And then all of the rules change. Yeah, because they don't need to stop and take a snack or go to bed. (laughs) That's right. We check in with philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein once a month for Philosophical Currents. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Ashley.